This episode is brought to you by Habit Aware. If you follow me on social media, you have seen me with my keen too in lilac. I love it. And I love that it is a tool created for BFRBs by someone who has a BFRB. My Keen 2 brings awareness to my trichotillomania by giving my wrist a gentle hug or vibration when I'm doing the scanning behavior. Bring awareness into your life by visiting barbaralally.com slash habit aware. So I'm Karen Pickett and, you know, we usually laugh about my last name Pickett because <laughs> I was a skin picker and it's just kind of interesting when people find out that that's my last name. We have a good laugh about it. Anyway, I'm a licensed psychotherapist in California, and I actually really didn't engage in skin picking until I was an adult. I had some other mental health issues that I was depression, anxiety, agoraphobia that I was working through when I was younger. And it was sort of like as I started recovering from those and got back out in the world, the skin picking came to the forefront. And I can consider myself a recovered skin picker. I don't engage in the behavior very much anymore. And one of the things that I think is great about that is that I have hope for other people. And I'm Shelly Defaria, and I'm a master certified coach. And I work with lots of people and families and parents that are either suffering from BFRBs or dealing with loved ones that are suffering. I'm also a facilitator of Dr. Brene Brown's research, which is really what has drawn me to the connection I now have with Karen and the work we are doing together. I've been pulling out my lashes and brows since I was 15 years old. And I consider myself in recovery, even though I'm still a hair puller. And that's part of what Karen and I will be you know, sharing a lot about today, what does recovery look like and mean? And I can honestly say that it is, can be a really awesome life living with a BFRB. Thank you so much. When you first started this behavior, you know, the polling and the picking, how long did it take for you to find out, Hey, there's actually a name for this. Oh, that's a great question. Too long. (laughs) But that, of course, is because I'm much older than you and older than a lot of the fortunate young people out in the world today who get to put a name to it pretty early on. And because parents are now have more information at their fingertips. So, yeah, I think that was part of the. Well, I say that I was going to say that was part of the problem for me, but in a way for me personally, it was actually a blessing and a curse in my family, because had my parents known what I was dealing with or getting too curious about what I looked like when I didn't paint my brows on, they probably would have made shame go even deeper at that time. So I didn't really get a lot of criticism that a lot of young people deal with. And so in a way, I didn't have to face the shame till later. 
that's interesting. Yeah. Good point too. I think there, Shell. Mm. I actually was fortunate in the sense that when I was skin picking, I was in the process of changing career. So I used to, to, to be in a different career. And then I was going to school to study counseling psychology. And as a result of me becoming an intern, I was actually hired by Tom Coraboy at the OCD Center of Los Angeles. I was his first intern ever. It's grown into a big organization now. And I was very fortunate. I was, I was skin picking at that time. And I was very fortunate that he happened to know something about a little bit about skin picking and hair pulling. And he taught me what was then the best, you know, information out there in terms of treatment. So I think at some point I finally revealed to him that I was a skin picker too. But when he first, when I first came across this information, it was as a therapist who was going to be helping other people. And I have to say that helping other people is probably <laughs> a real cornerstone of my, of my recovery, right? Because I was able to integrate the tools I was teaching to others. And then, you know, if I, I led the first ever in-person group for trick and skin pickers at the OCD center. And when I'm in front of other skin pickers or hair pullers, I better not have picked my face, you know, or, you know, I mean, I, I, I would be like, there'd be an understanding audience, but it always kept, it, it kept me accountable to myself. And I always felt that that was good and that that really helped me. And so it's led me to believe in the power of community and for people not to suffer in shame and isolation. And as Shelley said, you know, we've come a long way in terms of people being able to identify these disorders and we still have a really long way to go because I know people are still suffering in isolation, but certainly people like yourself, Barbara, and people on social media, it's really the, the amount of information on these conditions has grown exponentially in the last couple of years. And so that's really wonderful. I remember growing up in not meeting anyone else like me. And so I would use permanent markers and I would draw mm. on my eyebrows and, you know, try to cover up as best as I could. What are some things that you guys would do to try to blend in, in quotes? Oh, my whole body just went into chills. I think I had a little trauma response there. Mm. Oh my gosh. Permanent markers. I never did do that. Probably should. That would have been a great, great, <laughs> consideration <laughs> in hindsight i uh oh my gosh i dreaded anything around sweating swimming and i used to pencil well actually before pencils i used to use eyeshadow and that was just the worst because you know one you just think about hair pulling and you sweat so it's over <laughs> Yeah, I think those were some of my most dreadful times was not feeling like I could protect my sense of well-being as I walked out into the world. And that's something that Karen and I talk a lot about with our clients that, you know, parents will often ask, you know, well, you know, Kat Kathy wants a wig. Do you think that's okay? And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, if that's, if that gives somebody a sense of safety and, and protection. Absolutely. You know, I mean, the greatest day of my life was the day I had cosmetic makeup put on my eyebrows and I even have cosmetic eyeliner. So I don't have to have permanent makeup. It was the greatest gift ever. 
But as far as that fretting as a young person and constantly being afraid of being found out was the worst. And plus, as a young kid, you really don't know how to put them on so great either. So it it felt kind of, I was very insecure about that as well. Well, I just, my heart goes out to both of you, you know, you're just thinking about what it must've been like to be, you know, a teen, et cetera, and, and feeling so alone, Barbara and, and Shelly, like, you know, just, just trying to hide. And I had other things that I was trying to hide. So I, I, I guess I, I had that experience in a different way growing up, but it, when I, again, I was an adult when I started skin picking. So, and it was all on my face. So, you know, it was just a lot about makeup and covering things up and hoping, you know, I think most of the time I succeeded, although I I was on this TV show obsessed a number of years ago and I was looking at one of the videos and I was like, I had these big spots on my face and I was like, oh, I don't really remember having those big spots on my face and oh, probably wow. nobody else saw them, but I did. I was like, oh, you know. I I don't even really remember those. I mean, I do remember those days, but it's been so long for me since since I've experienced that. But, you know, it was about also, you know, just making sure my makeup was always great, you know, so I, you know, getting close to people or intimacy could be an issue because I was always like, eh, don't touch my face. you know. <laughs> but I but I have to say, I guess I'm fortunate that I didn't experience that. And I think a hair hair pulling, you know, suffers really from what I understand from those of you that, you know, have experienced trichotillomania, especially younger. I think it's just, it's, it can be very hard, right. To feel so alone and to, to have it sort of out there where people can see and comment on, you don't have eyebrows, you don't have eyelashes. I mean, that must have just been really hard. Doing this behavior, maybe not even having a name for it. The thoughts behind it of oh, I can't believe I'm still doing this. Oh, how do I stop? I just can't stop. How did you manage that? Because that's pretty tough to say, okay, I'm doing this thing. I don't love the outcome, but I still can't stop doing it. Oh, that's a big question. And with a lot of layers to it, because that story becomes encrypted over time. And I think that's the painful journey that some of us who are who didn't get to get educated at least until they were older. So now you have years upon years of self-talk that is deep in you. And so a lot of layers, right, to start to pull back. Whereas children aren't faced today that are fortunate enough to have some awareness either through their own education or their family. And that's where Karen and I kind of come in around the self-talk around our behavior for so many years and then seeking out help and only dealing and, and being encrypted. I kind of like that word, you know, it, it's, it, it is, yes. it's just becomes a so deep in you and the, that therein lies a space of total shame and hopelessness that you now live in. And now you're begging somebody to help you get out of it. And no one else there really knows how to do it, except for throw out, you know, some behavioral treatments like CBT, HRT treatment, you know, and, and behavioral treatments. But as we will discuss later together, those treatments are absolutely useless 
when you're in a state of shame. And we'll talk about that in a bit. But uh, that's a great question. These are really great, great questions, Barbara. I can relate to those experiences for other reasons and also really agree with what Shelley just said so well about what we believe to be the next step in advancing treatment forward. I could talk about HabitAware and all of the wonderful work they do all day long. Not only does the Keen 2 bring awareness to your BFRB with gentle vibrations, it tracks your vibrations, which allows you to look at your own personal data and make informed decisions. Start your journey with HabitAware by going to barbaralally.com slash HabitAware today. What are the triggering locations, if there are any? You know, sometimes people will walk into a room and see a chair that's comfortable because it has the perfect placement for their, you know, elbow to rest or and they're in the car. Are there locations that you know, even now, before I go here, before I get in that chair, I need to kind of prepare myself because I might start doing the behavior? I feel like I'm too old to answer that question <laughs> because it's, well, in the sense that I've kind of gotten... I don't really seek out locations anymore. I could be I could be in a state of grooming and feel like I have a couple of brows out, you know, that are growing in and then I'll tweeze them out. That's more of where I'm at now and and maybe this is kind of profound too. My fingers are are tired. Mm. They hurt. Mm. I don't have I don't have it in my joints to, to tug the way I used to pull. And maybe that's actually a gift, but it's also stinks because I'm, arthritis is right around the corner, which is something that I've seen in clients and and people who are closer to my age or older really struggling with. And that's a conversation that really needs to start happening. That's not happening. People who can't even, that's have shoulder surgeries and you know, because of pulling out their hair from their head all these years. So yeah, I don't have a really great answer to your question other than in the past, it used to be mostly boredom and mirrors for me. Yeah. I, I like what you brought up about the repetitive stress, you know, injuries on the body. I think that's something that definitely you know, I, I don't think we've talked too much about, but is definitely a concern and, you know, we're, we're, I'm considerably older than you, Barbara, and maybe many, many in the audience as well. So, you know, you know, these are things that after many years, you know, really, really start to show up. So, but one thing that I can say is my triggering location is the same as it always was, you know, and if, if I'm going to pick at something, you know, pop something out, I know now how to let it heal, to let it get to a certain point where I can just, and it comes out. So, you know, many years of experience, fine tuning this process, but you know, the place that I would do that is in the magnifying mirror in my, in my bathroom, you know, after I've taken off my makeup and washing my face. And so, you know, I know that, that traditionally that was the, that was where I, I'd sit up on the counter and just lean into the mirror and just, process my day. I would always almost always do it when I got home from work. I would it was my time for me and I would just process whatever was going on and could spend hours doing it, thinking and picking. And so, you know, it's it, it's really the same. It's it's always 
almost always been at home, almost always in, in the magnifying mirror, which I, I do keep and have had and have been able to, to stop picking primary, you know, I consider, again, I consider myself recovered. That doesn't mean I never pick. I just consider myself recovered, but you know, that is, that was where I could get in close, lean in close, see what's going on, see what I needed to get to. And I definitely experience, you know, and still do a sense of satisfaction when something comes out that I'm trying to get out, you know? So even though it's maybe not as strong as it used to be, but I really see how Shelly was talking about, you know, how this is encrypted. It's like, it's the reward system is also heavily embedded or encrypted, you know, because I Mm -hmm. enjoy that feeling of getting something out that anyway, skin pickers will understand me. It's like getting this certain thing out and the way it comes out and all this, you know, it's just, yeah, I, I, I still get jazzed by that, but I think I'm getting a little off, off subject here, but you know, just that was, that was definitely a triggering location. And for sure, whenever I work with people who are suffering, touching, seeing two top triggers, touching, seeing always, always the, the, those are it. Those are it. Those are the triggers. <laughs> so you could be anywhere, unfortunately, because as Shelly and I say, you know, we can't get away from our bodies. So we always take all this stuff with us, which makes it even harder. I remember when I first started pulling at 10, it was the first time it kind of showed up. And so everything was out and I'm pulling from everywhere. And then I had a few years where I was pulling less, never pull free, but it kind of went away a little bit. Things grew back and then I was hit again with a big wave. Have you noticed with your BFRBs that you have the same like undulating kind of behavior? Not so much anymore. I would say yes, when I was younger, for sure. There were waves of pulling and not and stopping for a few months. And I think what one reoccurring theme I noticed in my own practice and in my own life when I was younger is how people tend to stop when they leave their home, when they travel or they go into another space or place. I find that a really interesting, you know, well, you're out of your routine, you're out of your pattern, so to speak. So that's always had me really curious that that seems to be a common thread that along with perfectionism and everybody seems to be quite brilliant in our community and creative. (laughs) Agreed. My own experience is a little different in the sense that because I started as an adult, I kind of was just like all in for a long time and then gradually reduced and reduced and reduced and, you know, I'm at the level that I'm at today, but certainly, absolutely the people, most of the clients that I've worked with over the years, especially the older ones, you know, sometimes when someone who's a teen is fortunate enough to come into treatment, they haven't had that up and down, but I think it's very, it's, it's more, it's more common than not to have times when someone feels like they go into remission or recovery or, and then all of a sudden, boom, something happens. And again, as we'll talk about later, the research is giving us more information as to why that happens. Have you ever experienced another BFRB, whether it's for a short time or kind of overlapping? 
You have such great questions, Barbara. <laughs> These are yeah. great questions. I know yeah, stuff I haven't great. thought about in a long time, you know, especially by own experience, because I'm so used to helping others. But you know, I that is such a great question because it really leads into what you know the the model that Shelley and I have developed. And we're going to talk about later uh, process addictions, and I would say not sure I've had another BFRB, but certainly I've had other process addictions. <laughs> so in that sense, yes. But in terms of traditional, what we consider body-focused repetitive behaviors, no, fortunately I have not. What she said, process addictions takes it to a little bit of a different context. So if you don't mind, will you tell me the way that you went from having a BFRB to now, this is your focus. This is your work. This is your, I don't want to speak for you, but like life's purpose, you know, changing the lives of other people with something that you too have lived with. For me, the answer is the shame, you know, and learning that there is a way out and I know how to do it for myself. And I've learned about how to, what it takes to become shame resilient and it's far more powerful to get a grip on that than your behavior. That's really my takeaway from, that's why I'm driven to do what I do, because you do not have to be defined by this behavior. Oh, that's great. I, I, I love that, Shell. And, you know, I think a, a couple of things, Barbara, you know, again, I, 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 I was fortunate to, to come into working with these conditions as, you know, an expert, as a therapist, while I was still suffering with my own skin picking. So the fact that I've witnessed so many people suffer and feel hopeless and be so healed by a community that comes together, just knowing what they have has a name, that there are other people, that they're not some freak who's all alone, you know, and and how much that helps reduce shame has really, for a long time, I was, this organization is not really around anymore, but I was a professional member of the TLC Foundation for BFRBs, and Shelly and I were both on the board of directors until we weren't. And so we're looking into, we're part of reorganizing our community to have a home. So sort of related to that, two things. One is that more and more people are starting to realize that these conditions are not OCD. They're often treated as OCD. And one of the things that has been, you know, that's really my, why is this important to me is because I know that there are better treatment answers out there and Shelly and I are part of that puzzle. We're a piece in that puzzle of bringing more hope and help to others. But I have had people who have spent thousands of dollars going to intensive programs at OCD treatment centers with skin picking or hair pulling and coming out of those programs suicidal because they spent so much money and time and even those programs didn't work for them. We know why... Shelly and I know why those programs didn't work for them, but it, it just, uh, it, I, I don't really get angry. I just feel very motivated to help people who are suffering so much, because I think, you know, when, when you were, we were talking earlier about the periods where you seem to go into remission or recovery and then come back out a lot of times that breeds hopelessness. I'm never going to get better. I quit for a while, but then I start again. I, you know, nobody can help me. I, you know, I've been to therapy, I've been to treatment, nothing is working. And 
I really have a lot of hope now that people will have more hope and there's every reason to have hope because things are starting to come forward again based on research and based on our very strong and loving community that I think there is so much hope and help. So it's really an honor to be a part of this community and to be able to help others. I guess that's really just kind of been my life's mission. I love that you brought up it being misdiagnosis OCD because it was for me as well as self-harm. So it didn't even become a BFRB until much later. I'd love for you to speak on that. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned, you know, I first heard about these conditions working at at the OCD Center of Los Angeles and, you know, learn the, the model of treatment then, and this was, you know, 20 years ago, was through the lens of OCD. And and that's great. You know, I mean, it did start building awareness and start building some tools that are important. Um, the habit reversal, the, you know, the, the, as you said, Barbara, like uh, identifying the habit chain and trying to break it. Like if you always sit at the sofa and your hand always goes to your face, can you go sit somewhere else? You know, and that addresses a certain piece of it. And that's great. But what is really frustrating again is that unfortunately so many people are that treatment is not sufficient for most people to recover and and it's only now that we are starting to bring forward what the research is showing so I wanted to talk about that that um, identification of of self-injury because there is a book called a clinical guide to treating behavioral addictions by Amanda Giordano and she is a addiction specialist and professor in the United States. And her book came out at the beginning of 2023. And she does identify in her book, first time we'd ever seen it, that trichotillomania and skin picking are behavioral or process addictions. They are, they are addictions. She, however, and Shelly and I got in contact with her, misdiagnosed them in her book under the category of non-suicidal self-injury. So she put it in the same category as cutting and burning. So again, to us, just another layer of misinformation that's out there that we would like to correct so that people understand that the etiology of these disorders are not the same. They are not OCD. They are not self-harm. And that's really kind of our our work ahead of us. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Trick Talks. Did you know that I offer a trichotillomania online course? My course is called Sharing Our Stories. In it, we do a deep dive into your relationship with trichotillomania by using my guided journal, My Trickster Diaries, as our workbook. We also complete empowering activities and have a bi-weekly support group so that you can meet others in the community. As a gift to you, please use promo code TRICKTALKS25 to receive 25% off the five-session package. You can access this promotion at barbaralli.com. Mm-hmm.